What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's pod, I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community Discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. On top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all the other listening platforms. And the best part is, you get all of this for only $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports experience. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join. That's bwhustle.com slash join. Check out our description box for this episode to find out more. But that's bwhustle.com slash join. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my fantastic co-host, Dan Favalli. And we are going to torture ourselves on this episode because we are going over the all-star reserve picks in the Eastern and Western conferences. And as always, that is an immensely difficult task that necessitates having tough emissions in both conferences because, as I've said so many times, the rosters need to be expanded. Having 12 players in each conference just is not sufficient, given the depth of talent in the league and the fact that the league has expanded the size of rosters, the number of teams in the NBA since these rosters were set up with 12 apiece. So we're going to attempt to do it anyway. The, the starters are set in each conference, um, and, and we're going to dive through the two backcourt selections, three frontcourt selections, and two wild cards in both the East and West. So before we begin this torture, Dan, how's it going? I'm doing well over here. My usual amount of exhausted, I think, um, but no complaints. I think it's funny that we're doing All-Star Reserves after, um, I think on the, one of the previous podcasts, I said I have no interest in talking about the All-Star game because it shouldn't be happening. But then I sort of realized I do enjoy discussing who should be All-Stars. It's just that the game itself should not be happening. So please do not take these predictions as an endorsement of what is happening in Atlanta, which most definitely should Seconded. not be happening in Atlanta. Seconded and thirded. But how are you doing? 
I'm I'm recovering from a ridiculously tiring weekend. If I may lead us down a tangent here with story time. Yeah, I'm ready. So so Friday night we uh, we noticed that one of my dogs, her stomach was like swelling severely to the point that she was like two times her normal size. So you know, anytime that happens to a dog, you you get a little worried. And we were monitoring. And, you know, not sleeping very well. And around 2 a.m., we noticed that Alder, the dog, uh, started, like, panting really heavily. So we decided to bring her to the emergency vet. It's, like, 12 degrees out. I end up sitting in the parking lot with her, like, waiting for them to be able to see her because you can't go in and wait indoors because of the pandemic for, like, two hours. And she finally gets in and is going through x-rays. And my wife is, like, looking around the house to, to see if she might have gotten into anything. And we noticed that she'd eaten into her dog sister's food bag, like eaten through the plastic and consumed like a third of the gigantic bag of food. So we let the doctors know and and they told us that she'd basically eaten five days worth of food. Oh, God. Um, So like ultimately, this was the best case scenario because it could have been like something far worse. Um, But yeah, so she wasn't allowed to eat from Friday afternoon until Monday morning because she just had so much food in her system. But the best part of all of this is that like that overeating, that food bloat causes like a lot of gas. And the reason that our two dogs eat separate food is that Aspen's food gives Alder really bad gas. So the combination of that, like my house has just been this toxic wasteland of terrible smells. I have literally had to step outside so my eyes would stop watering. From the smell for the last two days. <laughs> so like we're back to normal now. Like she's normal size, but like we were so tired that my my parents, who are fortunate enough to both have had both doses of the vaccine, so we can resume sleepovers with our toddler. Uh, they came to pick him up on Saturday, just to like give us a night of relief. And my dad walked in the house and just cracked up at our hippo-looking dog. She was just so enormous. <laughs> Oh my god. Shout out to dogs. Dogs can be exhausting too, but I'm glad she's alright. I didn't really have an idea of what happened. I saw in our text thread that we have that you posted something on Facebook about it, but I was never on Facebook to look at what it was. But I'm glad it wasn't serious. Hopefully your home is is emanating better odors at the moment. It's it's less stinky now. It's It's about as stinky as you would expect from two dogs and a toddler during the winter cooped up. Which is a, a significant improvement from toxic wasteland. Yeah. Um, damn. So you had an eventful weekend. Yeah. You're welcome to all the listeners who now know way too much about my dog's bowel movements. Yeah, but I guess the, the natural segue from dog bowel movements is into our all-star reserve predictions. We did this differently. I th- These are my actual all-stars who I would pick and uh, inevitably settled on, and it was wildly difficult. You're trying to predict what's actually going to happen, apparently. Allegedly. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we like organically went the two different routes because it is so tricky whenever you have these conversations to to frame whether you're talking about what you think is going to happen with the coaches pitch, picking the reserves versus what we think should happen because inevitably every year we think the coaches got something wrong. Correct. Usually um, many somethings. Yeah, I, all reserves, there's definitely more snubs than starters. And I think if you, so if we go over the starters really quick, uh, let's do that. You want to start with the East? Sure. Beal and Kyrie Irving are starting in the backcourt. Kevin Durant, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Joel Embiid are starting in the frontcourt. 
I had zero quibbles about that. Really, the only argument you could have is because Kyrie is like 55th in guard minutes this season. Has he played enough? But he's just been so good. It's like there's no there's I, there's slight controversy with the West starters, which we'll get to, but there's no real controversy here for me. Yeah, I think since Kyrie is shooting something like 60, 50, 90 at this point, like you can give him credit even though he hasn't played as much. Like I, I, there are arguments for like James Harden, Jalen Brown, Ben Simmons, uh, but it's fine. It's not it's not worthy of griping. Here's the thing. This gets us into an awkward discussion where I think we should start with who I didn't pick. I didn't pick James Harden for the East team. And he has now only played in four fewer games than Kyrie Irving. And I think like 80 fewer minutes or whatever it is, or 100 fewer minutes. So it's like, it's it's based a little bit just on sample, but he has split time now. And he's played a vast majority of his minutes with Brooklyn. And he's been just absolutely ridiculous. I don't really have a problem about saying you upended your other team season and you didn't spend, you weren't here for the, in the East for the first part of this year. I'm just not going to to nominate you as a reserve. So like genuine question though, does it matter that eight games of his season weren't in the Eastern conference when we're picking Eastern conference all-stars? I've never really been clear on that because it's so infrequent that a, a superstar who's going to make the all-star team ends up changing conferences that early in the season. I, I think it should matter in the scheme of sample size, where if you want to reward people who've, who've played more minutes in the Eastern Conference, I understand that Harden's been so good that won't be a popular opinion. Where I Or maybe it will be. I don't know, actually. But where I landed... I'm, I'm going to say that it won't be. Uh, and I'm not even trying to be incandescent here. My My thing is just that I wanted to make room for other guys, and the only way I really knew how to do that was, okay... Harden was ex- like didn't spend part of the time in the East, a quarter of the season in the East, or whatever it's been. I mean, he has 18 games in Brooklyn and eight in Houston as we're recording this. Right. And look, again, Kyrie Irving has played in 22 games as of this recording. And these are the picks that need to be etched in stone because the coaches' selections were due Monday, which is when we're recording this. So that little difference is, you know, that's going to matter me to me a little bit because. Harden has been spectacular, but I'm splitting hairs here because, like I said, I'm making my my own ballot. I don't think it's unfair to look at it that way. I don't know that I'm penalizing Harden for he wasn't playing his best basketball before he came to Brooklyn, and I he's been so good in Brooklyn. I'm not look he leads the league in assists. I'm not even trying to. I I think Brooklyn's probably a little bit better than people expected, just because they've been terrifying now, and we haven't really even seen them at full strength. You know, and he's been, made such a seamless transition from being the scorer all the time guy to, you know, a, a very much a dual threat guard because he has been such a willing facilitator who is okay taking a step back for his talented teammates, which I don't think we expected to happen quite as easily. So, I mean, again, this, like I, I approach this from the perspective of what I think is going to happen. And he was the first name I wrote down as a reserve in the East. I probably agree with you. And I actually still have a wild card spot blank. So if you can convince me to put James Harden in that wild card spot, uh, I will absolutely. He's look, he's been so good. I just don't know what decision to make. I mean, I think I think it ultimately comes down to how you evaluate his Western Conference contributions. Because if he really only does have 18 games on the ledger, then sure, like you can much more easily make a case for having like Zach Levine or Fred Van Vliet over him. For, for one of those backcourt or wildcard slots. If we're including all 26 games of his season so far, 
I don't think there's really any argument for not including him, given how good Brooklyn is and how impactful he's been since he arrived. What's awkward about this is that his Western Conference games probably don't do anything to buttress his case, aside from, oh, he's played just in pure volume. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you are looking at just his Eastern Conference sample, and look, this is, again, what it what it comes down to is that Irving's at 780 total minutes, and James Harden has played 692 in the Eastern Conference. That's not, like, ridiculous. And I don't even know what Kevin Durant is at now because he's missed so much time, and he was voted in as a starter. My, my, my reasoning here, as I'm talking through it, feels a little bit more hypocritical just because Kyrie Irving was voted in as a starter. And Kevin Durant's at 679. You know what? I have to put... I'm putting James Harden in that wild card spot. I'm not going to put him in as the full-on reserve just because that will be my way of, okay, you upended Houston season, and I'm going to count that towards your – but if we're not going to weigh his play, how am I going to weigh his his attitude? So James Harden has made my Eastern Conference all-star ballot at the expense of – we'll get to it, but it was between him and – it was between more than two people, but right. it was him or someone else. And No way. <laughs> yeah, just – I would assume that your backcourt lock then is Jalen Brown. Right. I had him as a starter actually over Kyrie because as did just, I. just pure sample. But you look at what Jalen Brown has done this year. He's more dynamic scoring off the dribble. He's shooting above 50% on his pull-up twos. And that, that those percentages were higher. They've come back down to earth a little bit, but he's had to shoulder more of a burden on offense and he's uh, better as a playmaker. If you just look at his assist percentage on drives this year compared to last year, it is more than doubled. It was close to tripled at one point. And you factor in what he does defensively for Boston, where he's going to take on tougher assignments relative to to Jason Tatum. I don't know how you wouldn't have him in in the the uh, Eastern Conference All Star mix this this season. You can get into whether the Celtics. You know, people look at team success. I try not to measure that as much. Um, because I, it, I guess it certainly matters, but look, Jalen Brown is averaging over 25 points per game, shooting better than 40% from three, better than 53% from two. This was an easy pick for me. And like I said, I had him as a starter. The yeah, thing that's I mean, interesting is if you look at his, sorry, the defensive matchup data and even his cleaning the glass data, I wouldn't be opposed if people were trying to like figure out a different way of doing this uh, if they wanted to list him as a, a front court because I think he's played enough minutes as a true wing where if you could shoehorn him into the front court spot and that technically opens up another backcourt spot, but I ended up going with four total backcourt players, spoiler alert, now that Harden's in one of the wild card slots. Yeah, as did I, but I, I think that there's enough depth of talent both in the backcourt and front court that there are inevitably going to be snub feeling players. I hesitate to just to say straight up snubs because that means that they deserve to be in over other people and we're just restricted by the roster size. But yeah, you I, mean, have... I, th- I think the case for Brown is, is just fairly ironclad here. The The only counter argument I can see is like how much the Celtics have fallen apart after their eight and three start to the season, I believe. But that's not on Jalen Brown. Uh, I mean, a little he's bit. continue like, to play he... great. Like it's I think it's far more about like Kemba Walker struggling, the supporting cast not being able to pick enough, pick up enough slack that it's forced him to to overextend his role, even in a season where he's shown that he's far more versatile and well-rounded than he was going into the, the year. Like, I, I still just, I don't think that you can pin the blame on him, even if he hasn't performed quite at the same level. Yeah. The only thing I would point out is that uh, I would like to see him and Jason Tatum maybe have a better shot profile. There's, you know, he's hitting his mid ranger so it's fine. But when you have both 
Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, who are so fluent in the mid range. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's yeah. a terrible thing, but when you combine that with Kemba Walker struggling and you just don't have these necessarily lockdown shooters or knockdown shooters around you, excuse me, or someone who's going to put that consistent pressure on the rim efficiently, it's a little, I think you can say that's the flaw for the Celtics. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much, you know, because he's doing more than he's ever done, maybe you fault Jason Tatum more for that, which is, you know, perfectly fine with me. And I'm sure we're going to get to that later, but for the second backcourt spot for you, I'm going to continue guessing. And I, I would think that would be Ben Simmons because I think he's the other backcourt player who just seems to have a locked down spot on this team. Ben Simmons was in my wild card discussion. He did not make my okay. team though because James Harden did. Look at wow. that. Wow. Wow. How, how do you how do you justify that though? Like just a defensive player of the year caliber guard who can cover virtually any matchup, who has taken on more of a scoring burden, who has continued to facilitate for the team. I I, I just I don't. I'm not sure I follow a case against him. I would push back against him shouldering a higher scoring burden. He's not taking not, not necessarily consistently, but like in the games that that Embiid has missed, like we've seen him. What's their be record far without Joel Embiid? Shooter. What's their record without Joel Embiid? Well, it's not great, but how much how much of that can you put on on Ben Simmons versus the other guys on the team? I think you can put a, a good chunk of it on Ben Simmons if he's supposed to be an All Star or an All NBA player. There's Ben Simmons is ridiculously good, and that's why these these conversations they're problems because we're gonna invariably now I'm you know criticizing Ben Simmons, but things that were determining factors for me, he's not a consistent offensive presence for them, and he is a fantastic defender, and he probably deserves more love. There are probably like five or six guys right now that you could talk about for legitimate defensive player of the year candidacy. He's and he's also a transcendent passer. That's the remains. Philly is so dependent on him to get their three point looks off. But he has played 560 possessions without Joel Embiid, during which time Philly is minus 13.2 points per 100 possessions, and they don't have 18th percentile in offense, 6th percentile in defense. This stuff is going to—maybe it's splitting hairs, but this stuff matters now. And the fact that you lose Al Horford and all of a sudden the minutes without Joel Embiid are poor, a lot of those minutes, by the way, are not coming against second units because uh, Doc Rivers has decided, hey, we're not really going to stagger. Ben and Joel as much, which I think is smart because Simmons and uh, Dwight Howard would be even more of a disaster and Embiid and Simmons can actually work. But you want someone who can anchor, you know, if the if the lineup is Danny Green, Seth Curry, Tobias Harris, and Dwight Howard, you would like that to be like in a really effective lineup if Ben Simmons here's, is going to be your guy. Here's my here's my thing. Like if if there was an offensive player of the year award, every one of the top five candidates would be an all-star lock. And I just I don't like that a very valid DPOI contender like Simmons. Like you could make a you could make a, a clear cut case for him winning that award. You and, could, and he's not an all star. Like I I, I I can't really square that. Yeah, but as my phone is just going bonkers over here, I just the things that he's supposed to be better on on offense, and I'm not talking about actually shooting. He's just not like I don't know how we. He's a great offensive player. But that's but we, expectations versus impact, right? Like, okay, but what is his impact without Howie Joel Embiid on the court? What is his impact without Joel Embiid on the court? If yeah, he's an all star, so it's still so tough to parse out like how much of that is a is a testament to his shortcomings versus the Sixers' inability to replace Embiid. Like, yeah, like cons- theoretically, any all star should be able to carry a lineup. But like I, I feel like that's just too simplistic if it, because if it's, if it's the my, situation matters. If it's your only case, then then sure. 
but his his efficiency is down around the rim this year. I don't even think last time I looked, he wasn't taking as many of his looks there. The fact that he hasn't expanded his offensive game, I think you can absolutely hold it against him because I I think the Sixers are so much scarier if Joel Embiid can, uh, excuse me, if Ben Simmons can consistently score outside three feet of the basket. And he's, again, an invaluable facilitator, an invaluable defender. When you're going up against other guys, though, I do think that from scratch offense is going to win out a lot of the times. And I would argue that that's, you know, properly so. And you look, you can even look at his free throw shooting is still kind of like weird. Yeah, 67.1% is a career high, but awesome. So I would need to see more offensive growth from him. And the defense is fantastic. It's not that he's not in the conversation. I would actually have him as my first or second injury replacement based on the three people I was considering for the wild card. But they are being slaughtered when he plays without Joel Embiid, statistically. Do you think he's going to make the team? No, I actually don't. I would be a little bit surprised. Oh, okay. Maybe as an injury replacement, but I would be a little bit surprised if he does. And I'm not saying – I think he's probably a top 25 guy in the NBA still, but the rosters are small, and I just don't know that I've – you know, his numbers, I guess, are lateral, if you want to call them, to the past few seasons, which is great. That's still an, an incredible player. I just view some of these other guys are, are more impactful. And, yes, some of them are going to be on less successful teams, which leads me into my next case of I have Zach Levine here. I have him listed as my my first among the tough emissions, and I hated not being able to include him. What would be the case against Zach Levine? I think it's it's mostly just a team success thing. And again, like I picked this from the perspective of trying to identify which players the coaches are going to select. So in my personal ballot, I would have him um, holding down one of the wild card slots. Um, but I, I just don't think that the respect is going to be there quite yet um, just because the bulls aren't winning games. And even if it's a faulty argument, I think that you still can at least try to make the argument that he's an empty stats guy, which I, as, as, as our, our listeners hopefully know, like both of us vehemently disagree with, like we've, we've talked about how we think Levine is a cornerstone piece and should very, should very much be a part of Chicago's long-term plans and is, a, a worthy max contract guy. Yeah, I mean, I would push back. I probably think about Chicago. I might capitalize on his trade value now and see what I can get. But I have him in because I don't know how you leave off 29 points, five assists per game, hitting 58.1% of his twos, shooting better than he's shooting almost 43% on threes, almost 42% on pull up triples. His decision making, the turnovers can still be a little bit of an issue, but from watching him a lot and when I was digging deep into this, because again, this was. These are extremely difficult decisions for me. And we don't even have like official votes. Imagine how much sleep we would lose if we had official votes. Uh, His passing is just smarter when he's being surrounded by double teams. And I think, I'm sure this has been covered, you know, loosely or if not specifically on Bulls Twitter. His defense is better. They're, They're throwing him at, it feels like more star point guards and it also feels like he's doing a better job maybe not in full-on transition but doing a better job of communicating with his teammates in semi-transition um if he has to switch up assignments and he's not lining up with maybe the guy that he was necessarily supposed to i think the off-ball defense has gotten better too if you kind of watch him um he's either smarter about not helping away from corner three-point shooters and if he is doing things from there he's getting back there a little bit quicker so I think that improvement is enough. You go back to the team success thing, which I totally get. Chicago's offense is much better with him on the court, but they're still not elite. It 
if you want to put Ben Simmons in here over him, which it seems like you did, I, I totally guess that's fine. I just don't know. He's improved so much that you look at the numbers he's putting up on the level of difficulty with his shots, and then the work he's putting in defensively, even if he's he's not a, I want to make this clear, I don't think he's a good defender. And I'm sure at some point the Bull, a Bulls fan or someone will make the argument that he is an asset on that end. I would... I don't, I don't think he is yet. I, I just don't really see that. But the fact that I feel like he's much less of a liability uh, is a huge deal. And, you know, we're at the point where this is the third season of him doing stuff like this, and he's just improved. I mean, t- again, 29 points and five assists on an effective field goal percentage above 60. That is insanely hard to do when you shoulder the type of workload that he does, shot selection that he does, and it, he just seems like a smarter player at both ends of the floor. So I didn't... I. I won't say I didn't hesitate to put him in, but his maybe where he would have been a wild card at one point, he worked his way into just my full on reserve guard spot. Yeah, I would have on my personal ballot, I would have had him over Trey Young for my final wild card spot. But I have the opposite for my what I expect the coaches to do. And the reason in my head and and tell me if this just doesn't make sense is I, I think that from a coach's perspective, you can beat the Bulls without fully game planning for Zach Levine because you know he's going to get his and you can just take out everyone. When you play the Hawks, you have to game plan for Trey Young because if you don't, he's going to tear you apart. And I think that just like that differentiation in approach leads me to believe that Trey is more likely to get that final wild card spot from the coaches, even if the opposite probably should happen. Yeah, I'm. I I think that makes sense. That makes some sense. This is, and it's it's interesting to see how fans or analysts sort of diverge in their thinking from how coaches might view it. And I do think overall, one thing you could say is that coaches are far more likely to you know reward veterans over over younger guys too, which is something. Which is also- why I also think it matters that Levine hasn't made an All Star team and Trey Young has, so they're more likely to just kind of continue going with that status quo. And I just I have this hunch that we're going to be talking about Zach Levine the way we've talked about Mike Conley, where it's like this guy absolutely is an all-star, even if he hasn't been recognized as such. And he's just going to be start. He's going to start being viewed as that, that guy who is, who needs to get over that hump, even if it already should have happened. And look, for what it's worth, this would be an argument against me, but Zach Levine is still in the the bottom 450 uh, of our, our APM on the, the season while Ben Simmons is in the top 50. Zach Levine is 16th in value over replacement player um, per stat head, where Ben Simmons on that one is 23rd. And so it's interesting how differently those metrics will view them. But I, I, it's a discussion there. Look, I think Trey Young could also have a case here as well. And I think you could go with, I don't know, as Fred Van Fleet. I mean, we'll get to these names in a second, but who do you have as your first front court reserve? It's got to be Bam Adebayo. Just his, his importance to the Miami Heat on both ends of the floor just the way that he's continued to improve and, you know, is there a more versatile big man defender? Um, and then you couple that with his ability to run fast breaks, to facilitate out of the half court, to get his own shot. Um, you know, Miami's season has been disappointing. It is not because of Bam Adebayo. It's because other pieces have struggled. It's because Jimmy Butler hasn't been available the entire season through no fault of his own. Um, but but Bam has has been phenomenal. Yeah, and I think the big thing with him too is that now he he has that outside shot where no, he's not hitting these threes, but he's forty two percent from mid range, uh, which is 
that's a fantastic number if you're looking for a big man who could space the floor. Maybe he'll eventually get to a point where he's taking threes or hitting those shots at a, a higher clip, but it gives you some more things that you can do when building the front court, which incidentally, the Heat's you know, second big or second front court spot, uh, whatever you want to call it, that's been probably their area of biggest struggle this season. He was a no-brainer for me. My other lock here was Jason Tatum. Uh, you do, Looking at, at his numbers, he is at duh, 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 had Jaylen, he's at 26 points. 4.6 assists, hitting 39% of his threes, 47.8% of his twos. That's down uh, a little bit. Getting to the line at basically a similar clip as he was compared to every other season. But he's when you watch him, what he's able to do on offense now as a as a playmaker. That's you know fast forward 18 months ago before the start of last season, and uh, it I don't want to say it's night and day, but he's so much more polished there as well. And then I do think that he's a very impactful defender when you look at what he's able to do off the ball. I called him earlier this season. I think he might be the best off-ball defender in the NBA. I think it depends on how you define that. But then also, probably of late, I think after watching the Celtics, I don't know that everyone's going to feel that way or even if I would feel that way. But he's very much just a a high two-way impact player. And so I think he's performed well enough, even though it feels weird to give. And as I already spoiled, I only gave the Sixers one all-star. It feels weird to give, if you're looking at team success, the Celtics two all-stars. I just feel like he's been in that mix. I really struggled with this one. Um, I, I have Tatum as well on my my expected coaches pick um, for all the reasons you mentioned, plus just the reputation. Like we we went into this season thinking that he was going to be like a fringe MVP candidate. He hasn't been, but that reputation still persists. Um, on my personal ballot, I was really waffling between him, Nikola Vucevic, and Julius Randle, and I think that I might have had Tatum third out of that group it's hard. Like we're really just splitting hairs at that point. But in my head, it's like the Celtics haven't been as good as expected. Jalen Brown has been the best player on that team this season. um, As good as Tatum has been. And Vucevic and Randall are just, I think they're a little more important to their teams right now. Yeah. (sighs) I don't know if I could say they're more important. yeah, they're just Jason Tatum's defensive value far exceeds both of those guys. And then the thing with Randall, though, is his Knicks rely on him more as a playmaker, for sure. He is the engine of that offense. Vucevic, I don't know if you could say he's like the – I guess he's the engine of the Magic offense. But he's he's like, definitely the engine. He's the stabilizing force of it. Like I don't think you, you're, you're not going to run it through him the same way you're running it through Julius Randall is my point. You're just going to leave fast breaks and set up a lot of your half-court right. sets outside of the post. I, it's an interesting, it's an interesting dilemma. I for some reason I don't have I wouldn't view Vooch or Randall as locks though, and maybe that's a, a team success. No, definitely thing. not. But yeah, I mean, Which this locks, is why they should be like Levine, Vucevic, and Randall should be locks because the rosters just aren't big enough. Yeah, and look for Randall too. Just the the Knicks' dependence on him as, as a playmaker again. I'd point out, but I I think I probably value just like the. You're going to have the perimeter scorer who can hit those off-the-dribble jumpers and who can also initiate the offense for you. I'm always going to wind up evalu- uh, valuing that guy higher than a Julius Randle or a Vucevic, particularly if he gives you you know wing defense or just a bunch of off-ball disruption. Which I think is totally valid. So and that kind of leads me into my, my last front court lock, which I, I thought was more of a lock than Tatum, and that's Chris Middleton. I mean, what he's done for the Bucks, it, it continues to fly under the radar in part because – 
he's struggled at times during the playoffs. He hasn't been able to to elevate Milwaukee without Giannis quite as much. But I mean, the guy's averaging 20.5 points, six rebounds, 5.7 assists. That's a huge playmaking jump from him. He's shooting 50.5% from the field, 43.1% on threes, 89.5% on free throws. Like we're very close for the second consecutive season to him being in the 50-40-90 club. And just the fact that he's doing that under the radar because I think the NBA watching world has a little bit of Bucks fatigue after they've earned the top seed in the Eastern Conference for consecutive seasons but failed to capitalize on that in the playoffs. Like It might hinder him in like all NBA votes or something, which it shouldn't, but he is unquestionably an all-star. This one is tough for me, and I still don't know that I have faith in it because I knew – essentially that two both my wild card spots are going to go to guards and so this became a matter of Middleton versus Vooch versus Julius Randle I have Middleton penciled in there but it struggled to get over the factor like the lineups that he's playing without Giannis they're only dead even this year as opposed to destroying opponents like they were last year but then I'm looking at like the players that are in those lineups whereas Ben Simmons I'm like well he has Tobias Harris to lean on in there and Danny Green has still been in a lot of those and Seth Curry and then you look at Middleton's most used lineup without Giannis is Bobby Portis, who's been fine this year, but Torrey Craig, Pat Connaughton, and DJ Augustine. And so it's like, I just don't know how to value that. And I also kind of feel, so I ended up process of elimination. I, I took Vooch out. That one was tough. I went back and forth between him and Randall. I, I think I still need Middleton. Like I said, I have him penciled in here. And the efficiency with which he plays, we're talking about someone, you know, 20.5 points a game. That doesn't jump off the charts, but 43.1 shooting from beyond the arc, 54.7% shooting inside the arc, basically shooting 90% from the foul line, and then 5.7 assists per game. He might That's be, the huge part. He might be the Bucks' best passer, which is also why I went with him, where I think at this point, Vooch is definitely Orlando's best passer. Randall's definitely the Knicks' best passer. I'm trying to think if I'm forgetting someone on Orlando because Fultz isn't healthy right now. I don't know who else it would be. Even Aaron Gordon's not in that mix. Um, I hope I'm not insulting a healthy Mike Ricardo Williams. Uh, maybe I'm just forgetting somebody right there. But Middleton um, is doing other stuff again. In addition, where Randall is really kind of like he's still that bowling ball in a uh, a bowl in a china shop type deal. And his decision making is so much better. I want to make that clear. This is not me to disparage Julius Randall, but Middleton's going to give you more optionality on the the defensive end, and I think he gives you more offensive optionality because of the types of shots that he could hit. He's really just a scorer from every level, even though you wish that his game didn't stall out um, before the rim as often as it actually did. So I Randall came close here, but I, I went with Chris Middleton. So just to recap, my, my East reserves um, from, again, trying to attack this from the coach's perspective, my backcourt players are James Harden and Jalen Brown. My frontcourt players are Bam Adebayo, Chris Middleton, and Jason Tatum. And my wild cards are Ben Simmons and Trey Young. And I just I have to give shout outs to Zach Levine, Nikola Vucevic, Fred Van Vliet, Julius Randle, DeMontis Sabonis, Tobias Harris, and Jimmy Butler. Yeah, I won't go that deep into the shout outs. Um, I have Jalen Brown and Zach Levine as my backcourts. Jason Tatum, Chris Middleton, and Ben Adebayo in the frontcourt. And then my wild cards ended up being James Harden. And I went with Fred Van Fleet. And so he ended up beating out. Julius Randle was there, and so was Trey Young. I think I'm probably, maybe I'm penalizing Trey Young a little bit too much for not showing more diversification in his game. And is that on Lloyd Pierce? Is that on Trey Young? He's it's averaging, on Lloyd Pierce. It's on Lloyd. The fact that he's averaging fewer catch-and-shoot three-point attempts this season. And look, Atlanta's been way injured. Trey also did have that stretch, though. And I got shredded online for saying that he had been disappointing to a point where he had been disappointing. It stabilized, and I wasn't predicting that he was going to suck 
all year, but that stretch factored in. And I'm looking at Van Fleet where he's carrying – he's been the Raptors' best – not just their most consistent player, and he's definitely been – I mean, consistency varies from level to level of player, but between Kyle Lowry and Pascal Siakam, even OG Ananobi, he's just been their their most consistent player. And you're at a point where I think people just have not really noticed this. The the Raptors are coming. Like they're, they are. They're, they haven't even been healthy in forever. Kyle Lowry's missed the past couple games, but they have OG back now. Um, they're fifth in the East, so they're actually ahead. If you want to go on the team success thing, they're fifth in the East, which is substantially ahead of Atlanta right now. And Atlanta has all those injury issues. Gallo was only recently back and is still sort of ramping up. They don't have um, Bogdan Badanovic. Chris Dunn has yet to play for them. Rondo's been hurt. Uh, DeAndre Hunter's hurt right now a bunch for them. So insofar as you wait team success, it's important to note that. But Fred Van Fleet right now is the best player on a team that's basically dead even in the top four conversation for the East. That's mm-hmm. huge to me. And what's ultimately the difference, because Trey Young is a superior passer. He's a superior off-the-dribble shooter. I think Fred Van Fleet has added more variance to his offensive game in the sense that he's bombing away from three a lot more, where you just look at the distance of his shots, and so defenses have to plan around that. He is really stretching them out a lot further than he has, at least consistently in the past. He has a little bit more of a mid-range game to him. And then the other thing for me is just defensively. If I were to do all defense teams right now, I don't know where he'd end up in it, but we're looking at having four backcourt slots. Or no, all defense isn't built He's in that that. conversation for sure. He might get one of my 10... Um, all defense spots and that, I don't think that reputation has caught up yet no I, I feel like he's people small. just view him yeah because he's smaller and because he is a good scorer I don't think that people recognize enough like just how good he is on defense maybe it's also because he plays next to Kyle Lowry but that is a brutal defensive backcourt to score against and it's he also just doesn't give you as much range as a Marcus Smart who will defend everybody you need to put Van Fleet on ones or twos but and then that position is in, can you be a valuable position? And that's where the pushback will come. Is like, Trey Young is still not good on defense. It's just, that's just a fact. But people will argue, look at the value he provides on offense, and then who really is value um, providing net positive value in the backcourt on defense? And the answer is probably almost no one still looking at the defensive workload that Fred Van Fleet has shouldered and then the consistency that he's by and large played with this year, um, being the best player on what is a team, again, that is fifth in the East right now. All those things came together. So my shout-outs go to, first and foremost, uh, it'd be Julius Randle, Nikola Vucevic, and, and Trey Young. Trey Young was probably the toughest to leave off just because you look at his numbers. And I, I think Trey Young probably makes it, even though he didn't make mine. I like My guess would be if coaches were choosing, they'd probably choose Trey Young over Zach Levine if that was a debate that actually happened. So went with the wild cards there. And, the James, and look, the James Harden one was tough because if I wanted to be a stickler about how I was doing it in the first place, there'd be a spot. It would have been Trey Young, by the way. I had him penciled mm-hmm. in as the, the wild card over Julius Randle or Vucevic before we started. If I had a ballot, mine would have been James Harden, Jalen Brown, Bam Adebayo, Chris Middleton, Nikola Vucevic, Ben Simmons, and Zach Levine. Ben Simmons, I, I guess I didn't give him a strong enough consideration, but the minutes without him be just, I can't. I get that argument, away from those. but I just I, I can't devalue defense that much. Like I think offense is more important than defense in the NBA. Like it's not just this 50-50 split, even though each is half of the game technically, um, because good offense does still beat good defense. But he's so impactful there. It's just I think you see it though in those lineups without Embiid. How much is his yeah. defense carrying them? It's not, and it, you can't. And, and I I don't want to like discredit your argument. Like I, I do think it's a. Valid you said it was thing. shallow. I believe are your exact words or simplistic. I think it's overly simplistic, yeah, but I don't think it's incorrect. 
Um, like, we're splitting hairs between so many of these players. Put in Frankie Lakina, take out Simmons. That's fair. take out Levine. That's the look. Like, people keep writing in Jordan Clarkson for um, Sixth Man of the Year, but I don't know. I feel like Chris Boucher has a has an argument there. Just throwing it out there. Ready to move to the West? I am to go over the starters for the West. Steph Curry and Luka Doncic in the backcourt, and it should have been Damian Lillard over Luka Doncic. Um, and then LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, and Nicole Jokic in the, the front court. Zero qualms there. I don't think you had a problem with Kawhi. Sample. Honestly, I'm fine yeah. with Doncic there too. Uh, I'm fine with it. I thought it was cool. I, I can't remember. I was listening to a podcast where they were like, oh, maybe we should get into Luka Doncic apologizing for getting so much of the fan votes. He didn't definitely didn't have to like do that. I don't know. He didn't. But I guess like I don't have a problem with the fact that he did. It's not definitely not something you need to apologize for, but I don't know that it's worth debating. I just think you look at Dame's clutch numbers. And so Damian Lillard, spoiler alert, has to be the lock for the reserves in the backcourt for us. But someone yeah, do we even need to talk about that one? Like that's that's well, just we do. a foregone conclusion. We do apparently because I, I posted I run the Blue Wire NBA Instagram account and posted something about Damian Lillard's clutch stats and someone said crunch time isn't you know, doesn't factor into all star criteria. And I was I from a brand account, okay, sure. I, didn't, I didn't say anything, but yeah. it is part of the 48 minutes of a basketball game, so why wouldn't it factor into? It's not like those are the shots that people remember, you know? No, not at all. And yeah. look, the context for him is just, at this point, he's played more games without C.J. McCollum than Doncic has played without Kristaps. The, um, the, the difference there is that Kristaps has very much not been an all-star player this year, and C.J. McCollum was before he was injured. But the Blazers are also missing Nurkic, who wasn't great this year, but that's also, I would say, their third most important player overall, definitely in the top four or five for them. So yeah, he's an easy one. Who did you have as your next backcourt guy? This is where it got really tough. I had Chris Paul. You know, so I, I. I, I think from a raw number standpoint, you can make a case for a number of other guards. But I just – I think – the importance that he has to that team is so abundantly clear without citing or looking at any numbers. It's the exact same thing we saw last year with the Oklahoma city thunder, like where he, his presence elevates a team. Like he is a mid range maestro. He excels in these crunch time minutes. He elevates the play of other players with the exception of Deandre Ayton, who is still kind of struggling to figure out how exactly he fits in with this team. But Chris Paul alone just changes everything and that he is continuing to do this at his in terms of NBA age advanced age is just remarkable I I I don't think there's any way you can leave him off this team I think there's a way just because you you mentioned it well it's an incorrect way I it's probably more debatable than that to me but yeah he's been I mean 17 points 8.5 assists per game he's up to almost 40 percent three-point shooting after struggling from there 53.7 percent from two is 97.2 percent uh from the foul line the volume admittedly there isn't huge but 69 of 71 is still pretty damn ridiculous I, I think the the crunch time stuff swayed it for me because he's still so important to the suns there and part of that was they played some clutch games without uh, Devin Booker at one point, but he's he's sixth in crunch time buckets made this year, and he's twenty one of forty four from the field during that time. Um, the Suns are only eight and eight in games where they've run to uh, to one one in, the, in games that have gone two clutch minutes. Excuse me, I can't talk. But just his importance there, and the way he could still shape the offense or carry an offense, and even you look at Phoenix, and I think the Devin Booker Chris Paul games are getting a or chemistry is getting a lot better, but it's still not all the way there. And he's the type of player that's just so built 
to navigate that. And I do think there's a case for Devin Booker over him. Just when you're sort of looking at the time that um, Devin Booker missed earlier in the year and that he was really struggling with turnovers at one point, and Chris Paul has definitely been the uh, more efficient player, and he's appeared in more games, and their shot difficulties are not like ex- you know that much different from one another. So you could go either or here, and that might have spoiled that I just don't have Devin Booker on my all-star. That was a, he was tough to leave off too this he season. Is a very prominent name in my tough emissions section. So. Uh, but Chris Paul has been absolutely fa- fantastic. And I think to this point, long term, I, I think it's clear that he's not their most important player. That's Devin Booker. But to this point, I think he's been Phoenix's most important player. Right. Just looking at what they've done only this season, not thinking about progression going forward or anything else. Like if you took Devin Booker off this roster, the Suns aren't going to plummet down the standings as much as they would if you took Chris Paul away. At this point, yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah. So in the front court, I think the the biggest lock is the guy on the team that's won 73 straight games and is still the best defensive player in the league and the best player on the Utah Jazz, and that's Rudy Gobert. Yeah, I have Rudy Gobert here as a lock, and he's probably the defensive player of a year at this point, especially after Anthony Davis's injury, where you have to mitigate Davis' sample. Miles Turner will still belong in that discussion. Uh, I think <laughs> you, you could... say so begrudgingly. Joel Embiid, I had him in the early um base of it i guess you could still put him there but ben simmons might have usurped him in that that conversation but rudy gobert is just an absolute monster and it's not just the stuff around the rim but it's the fact that teams actively avoid the rim when he's in the game when you look at his rim deterrence rather than just his rim protection and they're just like i've never not that i've never seen but right now there isn't a defense even if i'm not nexus and osa's mom but you watch the jazz and like they're just I don't think any other team in the league right now has the luxury of maybe Philly comes a little bit close, but they also have Ben Simmons there. Like Utah shooters, uh, Utah's defenders don't have to move off their shooters. Like they, it's just, oh, Rudy Gobert's behind us. And he, you know, he can come out a little bit. I know Jazz fans will be quick to cite like some of his switch numbers over the past two years. I don't want him in space being pulled out against. We saw it a little bit against the Clippers uh, um, Versus Serge Ibaka, too much just because he's so good at recovering. Right, and look, he's. I think he's a lot quicker than people give him credit for, and that this idea that he's. I think there's two extremes to the idea of he's matchup proof versus he could be schemed off the floor. I don't think either one of those is true. It's and it it's probably closer to matchup proof, but he has been the best defensive player in the league. I think this year, um, one of the not two just best. this year. Over the past half decade, the most valuable defender over the past half decade. I think that's fair to, or close to it. One of the three most valuable defensive players over the past half decade. I think, I always think because the team numbers don't always support it. Anthony Davis to me just doesn't get enough credit there, but I don't, I wouldn't put him above Gobert uh, in that overall arcing discussion, to be clear. The other thing too, is a lot of what Utah does do on offense. I'm not going to cite screen assist here. Oh, I was really hoping you were going to. But... Like, you need Rudy Gobert there to set screens. And the gravity he has when he's rolling towards the basket, it's real. It's, you know, there are other... I think Andre Drummond's a good example of this. Andre Drummond just doesn't have that type of roll gravity. And I think he probably has more than the numbers will show because he has not been a great finisher when he's actually played for Cleveland in that. And it also wasn't a huge part of his game this season. But the fact that Rudy Gobert does, that is an asset on offense. And, I mean, when him and Mike Conley are on the same page now, uh, during, like, that's just another added element where Utah can just all sorts of different lineups and they're built to navigate all these different permutations. And you look right now, I think the last time I checked the on-off splits, Rudy Gobert is still the most valuable player on that team by those. And again, those are, there's so much caked into there, but we're talking about defensive value where it's hard to 
anchor lineups on your own defensively. Rudy Gobert is the type of defender um, that can come pretty close to to doing that. And so uh, he does not, he does lead. Oh no, that's uh, Mike Conley is currently first in their net rating swing among all rotation players. So, um, but point stance, Rudy Gobert. A a couple other things though about him that I, I think just don't get talked enough, talked about enough is how much he avoids negative plays. I mean, when was the last time you saw a guy average more blocks than personal fouls when filling this large of a role? Because he's at 2.7 blocks per game, 2.2 fouls per game. Like that in and of itself is remarkable. He also just doesn't turn the ball over, which granted he's not operating within an offensive flow that leads to many turnovers, but it's still important that he just avoids those mistakes. And then also his rebounding. And I, I think rebounding is an area that we just don't discuss enough in general. But it is really important, like the fact that he's generating 3.5 second chance opportunities per game and that he's such a good defensive glass cleaner that even if you do manage to like get a shot that could produce an offensive rebounder, he just doesn't let you have those. These aren't cheap rebounds that he's getting. These are like legitimate possession ending rebounds. And that has to matter, too. I mean, there, there, there are so many like obviously great areas of Rudy Gobert's game, but I still think he's just massively underappreciated because he's so good in those littler areas too. Yeah, and look, you can you can also just see it too when he's not on the floor, the way the Jazz defenses really changes, even when they have good backup five play. And the number I was thinking of, so Utah's a plus 13.4 per 100 possessions when he plays without Conley and Donovan Mitchell this season. Sub 200 mm-hmm. possession sample size, and shout out to Jordan Clarkson for really helping anchor those units, but that you can do things like that. And they had to obviously, or they didn't have to, but when Mike Conley was missing time, um, he's just, he's so impactful as, as a defender. So I agree with you. My other lock for the front court. uh, I actually feel like all the front court spots were locks unless you disagree. Anthony Davis and Paul George. Yeah, absolutely. And so Anthony, let's do Anthony Davis first because he's not going to play in it while he's recovering from the calf strain slash Achilles issue. I'm interested to see who you have as his, replacement I, I didn't know the way to do this because they technically wouldn't be the wild card spot right if we went that way yeah I'm so not let's save quite it. sure how that works all right I so but Anthony they Davis, try to match the position yeah so let's um I don't think they do actually I don't think they'll I think we've gotten to a point where you could if you if we wanted to, you could basically fit any combination of players that you want into the reserves we're pretty close to it but I do think Anthony Davis deserves to make it he's fallen off offensively since the scorching hot start to this season uh, I don't know if that's he's just. I mean, he's coming off the shortest off season. There's some complacency too. And the shortened off season and it, historically shortened off season for him. Mm-hmm. Still incredibly valuable to what the Lakers do defensively, and he has his own gravity when he has the ball. Uh, I think when you look at his volume at the free throw line, which he hasn't been great there relative to his pass play, looking at his shooting percentages, but he's not getting to the rim as much, which I think you can viewers are concerned, but then it's like, oh, Anthony Davis is more of a perimeter threat, even though some of those percentages have come back down to earth. Just very clearly an all-star to me. And then Paul George, I feel he's quieted down a little bit, I guess, but he's been overall well, he was smoking hot on Sunday. Right. I think he just had to like bounce back from the prolonged absence because of I, I believe it was a toe injury, right? Yeah, both him and Cole. I think that's why the talk is settled a little bit is because he there was a little bit of a cold streak from three. Um, and I say that he's still shooting 47.1% from three, by the way, just in, just an FYI, 54.6% of his twos this year, which would be a career high, 24 points, 5.5 assists, him and Kawhi have both been absolutely fantastic. And because he missed that time as did Kawhi, it feels like talk around both of them is just not relative to, again, Kawhi was a starter, but 
I almost feel like we're not talking about the Clippers enough, right? It's been Jazz and Lakers and, oh, the Suns are perking up and what's wrong with the Mavericks and how how the Nuggets decide to play today. Oh, Jamal Murray scored 50 without a free throw. Uh, I feel like they, I don't want to say the Clippers are undercovered or underrated, but I do feel like the discourse of them has quieted down. And, and I don't know what the, who would, who is the player that you would consider putting in above either of these two? There, There isn't one. I was trying to, I think, I will say I didn't hesitate before writing those names in front. I I didn't either, but front court wise, I think the only one I I could really make a begin to make a case for be Zion Williamson, who is my first wild card. Okay, I have Zion Williams. I I actually do (laughs) my wild card here. My last wild card spot was up in the air. It's between Zion and someone else. So we'll we'll talk through that spot. But give me your give me your Zion case. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. It's just so obvious watching him in the last few weeks how much the game has clicked for him. Like he's no longer just, you know, hanging around off the ball and waiting for his opportunities. He's taking a more active role in in handoff games and in the pick and roll game and cutting. And it just it feels like his understanding of half court geometry has just improved exponentially in the last couple of weeks to the point where he's not just like this guy who's so athletically talented that he's getting numbers, but he's just a phenomenal basketball player who's getting even bigger numbers. I mean, it's it's beyond clear like how much more the Pelicans are starting to value him on offense, where they're they're making more of a concerted effort to get him the ball in these key situations. And he's just ultimately an unstoppable force. Like I, I don't know how he's not going to be an all-star lock for the next like decade or so barring some sort of ridiculous injury because there's no way to keep him away from the rim and his touch when he gets there is so ridiculously advanced for a 20 year old I mean he's he's taking 74.2 percent of his shots within three feet and converting those at a 67.6 percent clip even though everyone on the opposing team knows that that's where he wants to go. And because of the diversity of angles that he takes and his ability to you know, take these unorthodox approaches to the rim where he's jumping a half second earlier than you might expect or curling around or hanging in the air just a little longer, like he is just this unschemable force now. Yeah, I don't... So my wild card spots came to uh, Evan Booker, Donovan Mitchell, De'Aaron Fox, and Zion Williamson. I think I'm giving one of them to Zion Williamson. And just to add to the case that you laid out, is the big the big thing here is that you look at his numbers, and yeah, they're they're obviously monstrous, but there's this misconception that they come with him sort of being just a play finisher, and he's more of a play starter now. And recently, the Pelicans have him running more more pick and roll. Um, but you look, he's and possessions in isolation get murky. How do you distinguish them from post up? Sometimes when you're looking at the tracking data, I personally don't really care. Uh, because either way, it would still be incredible. But among uh, every player who was used or finished at least 30 isolation possessions, so that's 60 players right now, his 65 effective field goal percentage is third behind only Kevin Durant and Tobias Harris, who also has been spectacular this year. He's, like you said, he there's more diversification in the angles that he's using when he has the ball. And him being that much of an on-ball force, it's just incredible his defense is still a problem. He's very much a part of the Pelican struggles there. He is off the ball. He can get burned by corner three-point shooters. And I don't know if that tips the scales away from him when you're looking straight up against a, you know, Fox is, comes and goes there, but he's more consistent presence than Zion is. You could probably say the same with Donovan Mitchell. But my second 
wild card spot was incredibly difficult. I gave it to Donovan. So tough. Where did you land with it? I did as well, just because I think that, uh, again, approaching this from the coach's perspective, like Utah has been the best team in the league for a while. And whether that's sustainable remains to be seen. It could be. Um, But Donovan Mitchell has been the second best player some nights. I I don't know if he's actually been better than Mike Conley, but I mean, just the, the, the scoring load that he carries is going to get recognized. Like this is Utah is too good of a team to only have one all-star and he's just the most likely guy to get that nod from the coaches. And I do think he deserves it since that's how I did my picks. He's been, I actually, I actually think Mike Conley deserves it over him. Like he would have been on my ballot in that final spot. Is that like a little bit of a career achievement thing? Mike Conley's missed more time. Yeah. It's it's part of, it's part career achievement, but it's also just like how impactful Conley has been on both ends of the court. Like Mitchell did suffer through like a shooting slump at the beginning of the season. He's been inconsistent some nights on defense. I think Conley has been probably the, the lower ceiling, much higher floor player for this season. If, if that was the case, I would rather have Devin Booker here. I don't know that you can make a case for a Mike Conley over a Devin Booker or even Mike Conley over De'Aaron Fox at this point, I guess would be my. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's all so tough when you get down to that final spot. I mean, personally, I think that Donovan Mitchell is going to get that nod from the coaches, and then I'm still not quite clear how that res- that replacement works for Davis, but it'll probably be Devin Booker if it doesn't have to align with positions. Yeah, it doesn't have to align with positions. I think that it should be Mike Conley getting the wild card and then Donovan Mitchell being the replacement. Well, Mitchell, since his first five games of the season, which were a struggle for him, is averaging 25.6 points, 5.3 assists, shooting 41.1% from three, 84.1% at the foul line. He's definitely not as efficient inside the arc as um, a Devin Booker or a De'Aaron Fox. That one was really tough. This this spot was incredibly tough for me. I think his his highs have maybe been a little bit higher than I don't know that Devin Booker has necessarily had the the chance to I mean, his numbers the numbers are just they're so much similar here. And so I don't even know this might just be a matter of preference at this point where I'm looking at But uh, Booker has also been like actively bad on defense. Yeah, he's not as good on defense as Donovan Mitchell is. And De'Aaron Fox is better on defense than, than Denver Booker is as well. There's, But I feel like some of it's just a matter of preference. De'Aaron Fox has been just absolutely molten. He has a, De'Aaron Fox has a legitimate step-back jumper now where you actually have to you know game plan for that. And he's carrying such a huge burden on offense when you just look at what's happening with, with the Kings. He helped them navigate Rashawn Holmes' absence at one point. So yeah, I, it was a toss-up between Fox and Mitchell for me. And so if we're doing the replacements – injury replacement i'm probably giving it to De'Aaron fox over devin booker i think you can even expand beyond that like you can make a valid case for the scoring potency of brandon ingram you can make a case for shea gilgis alexander being ridiculously good and carrying the thunder to a much more respectable season than we expected especially early on you can 100 make a case for demar Derozan, who is having what i think is a career year for the Spurs and and diversifying his game by becoming a much more capable and willing passer. He's taking more threes. He's been, you know, we can cite the the negative net rating swings that he always seems to have, but like, it's very clear how much he means to the Spurs. Like any of those guys, like I wouldn't bat an eye if you had them in that final spot. 
Yeah, DeMar DeRozan got more consideration for me than I ever would have anticipated DeMar DeRozan getting mm-hmm. this season. Uh, the injury replacement, I'm still in my head just going back and forth between is it De'Aaron Fox or is it Devin Booker? I think because of De'Aaron Fox's importance to the Kings on offense and then him being a little bit more of a – well, not a little bit, a substantially more impactful presence on the defensive end. And then even he's someone who's going to draw – at, he's getting the foul line at a higher clip than Devin Booker right now too. I, I go De'Aaron Fox by a hair, which kills me because I, you know, I'm a big Devin Booker guy. And so. yeah, and the the other thing, and and why I would agree with you is we can't forget about Mikael Bridges, who like from a pure impact perspective might deserve to be in that conversation as a replacement. Like be, because he doesn't score as much as Booker, he's not going to be in it. But like you can make a pretty legit argument, I think that Mikael Bridges has been the second most important person on the Suns this season. Well, all right, that might be going a little too far off the rails. There's been no players that are more important on the Suns than Chris Paul and Devin Booker. Mikael Bridges has probably been their most consistent player this season, if you right. want to say that. But um, yeah, I mean, again, like just looking at what's happened and not what might happen going forward. I mean, I guess that's an interesting take. Now, we had the Zach Levine. People were mad that Grant came on the pod and said Zach Levine should be a sixth man. Now you're saying that you should replace Devin Booker with well, Mikael Bridges no, in the no, All-Star I'm game. No, I'm not. I'm not. And, and to clarify, that is a compliment to Mikael Bridges and not an insult to Devin Booker. I understand that. Hopefully our listeners do too. But do you have anything to add to this? The, well, the, let's just recap our teams here. That's unfortunate. So, so we recapped the East already. So what's your, what's your West team? My, my West team, um, again, from the coach's perspective, I have Damian Lillard and Chris Paul in the backcourt. I have Rudy Gobert, Paul George, and Anthony Davis in the frontcourt. And I have Zion Williamson and Donovan Mitchell as the wild cards. And I think that Devin Booker becomes the injury replacement for Anthony Davis. My personal ballot, I would have had Mike Conley over Donovan Mitchell, and I would have included Donovan Mitchell as the replacement. So this is my personal ballot. I have Dame and Chris Paul in the backcourt for the reserves. Anthony Davis, Paul George, and Rudy Gobert in the frontcourt. Donovan Mitchell and Zion Williamson got my wild cards. And then I have De'Aaron Fox as the injury replacement for Anthony Davis. These are tough. Let us know what you These think. These are really tough. Shout out to all of you for making it through this. Uh, shout out to the one and only Mikael Bridges, apparently, before we get out of here. Just remember that you're a better basketball player than Chris Paul, Devin Booker, LeBron James, Michael Jordan. Adam is having you climb this this all-time pantheon of, of players. So shout out to you. As always, guys, though, thank you for, for listening. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you consume your podcasts. Until next time.